Good morning. <clears throat> go ahead and if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3. And I will tell you that as, uh, as we begin this, that even as I began my preparations over this, over this passage, it is with maybe like an, an extra dose of, of humility and caution, um, as I know that this text in particular has, um, has been a source of much abuse and pain and has caused much suffering in the church throughout history, to, particularly to women. And so I, we want to be careful to be very true to the word and, um, and, and, and be affirming. I think without the, uh, without the context, this is why it's so important that we read these texts within the context of scripture, within the context of a book, so that you can see it within the con- a greater context of, of, this, of this book as a whole, of this section of scripture as a whole. And then just as important, we have to look at these things through a c- cultural context too. You can't look at this outside of the fact that, that, that Peter was writing this to a specific cultural group at a specific time in history. And without that, you can, you can go off into lots of ditches that can be um, harmful at best. I think without the proper context, this passage, this passage absolutely can come across as, as, as patriarchal at best and, and downright chauvinistic at worst. So I guess I would ask you before you, as we read, and, and you've heard this, you're like, oh no, not this text, um, that you, before you start throwing things at me or, or walking out, that in, in the words of, of uh, Ricky Ricardo, who are, those of you who are old enough to remember, know who that is, uh, let me do some splaining. Um, <laughs> I would say when understood rightly, this, it would, I would contend that this text is immensely helpful for everyone and it is wonderfully affirming of women. So if you're able, uh, go ahead and stand with me for the, for the reading of God's word. And we're gonna begin in chapter three, verse one, and we will read through verse seven. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, In the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Pray with me. 
Oh, Father, we know that your word um, brings life. This is the story of your, your love for your people. So God, as we give us ears to hear what you would say through the apostle Peter to this, to this church in, in first century Rome, as well as to us today, God, would we not help us to, to, to not be clouded by, by the ways that this has been interpreted, or the ways that we have heard it, or the ways that we have been, been hurt by this in the past. God, would, would through this text today, would we hear your heart, your heart for marriage, your heart for wives, your heart for husbands, and more of your heart for those who are lost without Christ. God, by your strength, would you speak through me those things today? And we pray this in your name, amen. You may be seated. So, for context purposes, let's, let's go back, and I don't wanna do like a full review of everything we've gone through over the last few weeks, but let's, let's just review for just a moment. We've entitled this, this series, Hope for Exiles, because Peter is writing to churches throughout the Roman Empire whose lives and values are, are very different from the culture around them. Peter's instilling hope by reminding them that their identity is as chosen and precious children of God. This is how you're to live with this identity. They are part of a spiritual household that is built on the cornerstone of Jesus himself. He says, I want you to know, remember this as you live in this culture, know who you are. You are a chosen race. You are a, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. I have set you apart as God's possession. You are elect exiles. That's looking back. He says, don't just look at your identity here. Don't, don't just look back. Look forward. Look forward. You are not only, see what you've done, you are now an heir to an eternal inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And this, this inheritance is being kept in heaven for you and it's being guarded by the very power of God. And then he says, in light of this, in light of this, your mission as you wait for this eternal inheritance is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his glorious light. That has been the message that we have, we have walked through over the last three weeks. And it's, it's with this hope in the background that he begins to instruct them on how they're supposed to live in a world that will alienate them and persecute them for their faith. So we saw two weeks ago with Pastor Kevin, we learned how we are to live in a world where, where the government and the culture as a whole can be hostile to your faith. Last week, Lawson covered the, the text where Peter then narrowed it down a little bit. He said, this is, now you got that, Let's, let me talk about how you are to live in a work environment or maybe a school environment that can be hostile to your faith. And then this week, he's going to narrow it down even further. 
and says, okay, now we've got that. Let's bring it in even closer. Let's talk about how you should live within the smallest unit, within the family, and most specifically within a marriage. How do you live in a marriage that can be hostile and can alienate you because of your faith? Um, that is the context of our passage today. I think that many people and, and even churches have fallen into deep theological ditches by treating this text as a, as, as a universal instruction about marriage. And sadly, this, that practice has, has, has led to significant harm and even abuse for many women throughout the generations. So ladies, I, I hope, I hope that you see today that this text is profoundly affirming of your value and worth and it's intended for your good, not your harm. The fact that Peter spends six of the seven verses addressing women is only because the whole letter is addressed to how oppressed people are to act amid oppression. I don't think it's any, probably a surprise to anyone here that women were far more oppressed in the Roman Empire than men. And therefore, Christian wives with unbelieving husbands face exponentially greater persecution than Christian men with unbelieving wives. So through that lens, I think we can now begin to examine this text. And let's begin in verse one and two. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. So it starts off in the same way. In the same way as what? Well, it clearly refers to what precedes this text, which would be what? So in the same way that students and employees are to respond to their teachers and their bosses, in ways that may persecute them for their faith? Wives, respond to your husband in that way. Similarly, all Christians are to subject themselves to, to those in authority over them, treating them with honor and respect, even in the midst of persecution. Wives, honor your husbands that way. Now let me just pause right here for just a moment. Because I can imagine what some of you may be thinking. So hear me clearly. I do not believe that this text is in any way telling women that they must passively subject themselves to physically or even extremely verbally abusive husbands. Please hear that. Sadly, in the culture that Peter was addressing, women in secular homes were often treated as little more than disposable property. Their husbands could divorce them at will. An unfaithful wife could face death for her offense. But there was no penalty at all for an unfaithful or abusive husband. 
I remember a couple of years ago, I, I attended a biblical counseling conference on the topic of abuse. And I can remember sitting in this auditorium just weeping. It was sick. As horrific examples were given of churches today in our time that had instructed women to remain in homes and submit themselves to repeatedly being beaten and abused. Some women were advised by pastors to be submissive even at the risk of being killed by their husbands in the spirit of being submissive. But I can tell you, not here. Sadly, we have, we have had to, at different times, we have called the police. We have encouraged women to call the police on abusive husbands. We have placed families in safe homes. We have even affirmed some women's desires to pursue divorce after months or years of repeated incidences of unrepentant abuse. Sadly, women in the Roman Empire did not have any such recourse. And therefore, our text commonality between then and now is simply that the call for Christian spouses to desire and pray for their spouse's salvation. In that culture, that's all they had. And it should have been their desire, and it should be their desire today. The motivation for all the behaviors that, that Peter has instructed beginning in verse 11 of chapter two that we started, looked at, started looking at two weeks ago, the theme is being missional in a hostile environment. As Christians, we are to live and speak in such a way that by our godly countercultural behavior, our unbelieving friends, neighbors, coworkers, bosses, teachers, and yes, spouses may, as, as chapter 2.12 says, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. As you can tell, that's the same motivation that we see in the first two verses today. Wives, be subject to your unbelieving husbands. Why? so that they may be one to faith without a word by your godly conduct. Now some may ask, why does it say without a word? Well, I think that, again, this is where cultural context plays in. Because I think this is primarily because wives had no voice with their husbands in this culture. In first century Rome, a wife trying to teach or preach or, or to even verbally persuade her husband was culturally offensive and would only serve to increase her risk of harm. Therefore, treating her husband with love, honor, and respect, even if she was being reviled and persecuted for her faith, would be the most effective and persuasive means of displaying the gospel and securing her safety. Even today, when Christian wives may not be as persecuted for proclaiming the gospel to their husbands, it is still more effective 
if your compassionate proclamation is also accompanied by respectful and pure conduct. So now I think that with, with that in light, with, that, with, with understanding that, we're now better prepared to address the next little landmines. They're found in verse three and four. Let's look at those. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Okay, so let me clear up right off the bat that this instruction is one of priority, not abstinence. It is not saying that women should never get their hair did, should never wear jewelry or makeup, and they should only wear sweatpants, t-shirts, or frumpy dresses. And I know that there, there are denominations and religious sects that will, that will take these verses very literally. And I would contend that that is misrepresenting the greater context of being missional amid hardship and persecution. If your prayer is for your husband to worship and desire you above all things, then emphasizing your physical beauty will probably work magnificently. But if your hope is for your husband to first and foremost worship and desire Jesus Christ above all things, then you would probably be better served to emphasize the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit over a smoking hot outfit to paraphrase the text loosely. <laughs> also, I, I love that the text says that adorning yourself with the hidden beauty of godly character is not just more effective is in, in drawing your unbelieving husband to faith. It says it is also of great worth in God's sight. I love the ESV translation, which says it is very precious in God's sight. Isn't that awesome? Ladies, you can do something that is very precious in God's sight. What more incredible quest and motivation is there than striving to do that which is very precious in the sight of God? And we know that in this area of external beauty, things probably haven't changed much over the millennia. Unfortunately, women's value and identity has almost always been primarily defined by their, by their physical appearance. It reminded me, I thought of this, a couple, it reminded me of, a, of something Kevin said a couple weeks ago. He, he quoted Russell Moore and in regards to patriotism in a quote that said, we are Americans best when we are not Americans first. And I thought, you know, I think you could rephrase that quote in our context. That a woman is beautiful most when she is not physically beautiful first. Oh, as a pastor, I, I, I hope... Ladies, hear that. Especially teenage girls, please hear that. Young girls, please hear that. You are beautiful most 
when you are not physically beautiful first. I don't think that Peter is telling women not to enjoy or display their God-given beauty or even to accentuate it with their apparel. He's saying seduction evangelism is not an effective ministry tool, even with your husband. Ladies, enjoy wearing nice apparel. Enjoy looking stunningly beautiful. Especially Carolyn, my wife. (laughs) However, first... First and foremost, as Colossians 3 says, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, put on kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. This is the message of verse three and four. That is how you can best win your unsaved husband to Christ and make Jesus look glorious to everyone. Now we can move on to verse five and six, which on the surface can lead to even more consternation among the fairer gender. Let's look at it. Verse five, for in the past... The holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. So, once again, let's get this out of the way right up front. I don't believe that Peter is instructing Roman Christian wives or wives today to refer to their husband as Lord, Your Majesty, Your Highness, Sir, or any other such phrase. Sorry, guys. Verse five and six are simply an illustration of what what Peter instructs in verse three and four, just using the Jewish matriarchs of the faith and Sarah in particular as an example for their current and future women of faith. So the question we I think is probably maybe a natural question is why did Peter decide to use Sarah as his character model? Well, I think we can start by, by dealing with this, this front and center issue of, of, of this issue of calling him Lord. The only text that Peter could possibly be referring to is Genesis 18.12 because it's the only time that scripture records Sarah referring to Abraham as Lord. And ironically, as we're about to see, you will notice that she doesn't say it directly to him or anyone else for that matter. It's simply, it's a passing thought in her head. The context we'll see is is, is Sarah overhearing her conversation where Abraham tells, where the Lord tells Abraham that he and Sarah are about to be parents. And look at this text. I think you see it behind you. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. 
Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? Are you surprised? This text probably isn't what you would expect to read if Peter was instructing women to address their husbands in some sort of kingly sort of way. And said clearly it reads much more as a, as a casual term of, of endearment towards her husband Abraham. But of course there's another thing that doesn't seem to fit here. And that is that, the, that the, the context of everything we've been talking about so far is how a Christian wife is to live with an unbelieving husband. And yet, we can, I think we'd probably all agree that Abraham is certainly not an unbelieving husband. What appears to be going on is that Peter's also opening the application to believing spouses who at least occasionally have husbands who act in ungodly ways. Anyone here have one of those? Don't raise your hand, please. Well, go ahead, go ahead. No, just kidding. <laughs> the emphasis here is on Sarah's obedience to Abraham. So here is what Peter's readers probably understood him to be referring to, which makes this whole section much more meaningful. In this instance, um, the most apparent instance where Sarah chose to obey Abraham even when he was behaving less than godly, is found in Genesis 12. And in this instance, Abraham was in Egypt to get some food during a famine, and he was concerned because his wife was so beautiful that Pharaoh might kill him to have Sarah for himself. So what was his grand plan? He asked Sarah to lie and tell the Egyptians that she was his sister so that they wouldn't kill him. Of course, this meant that they would likely take Sarah into the Pharaoh's harem where she would be treated as one of Pharaoh's many wives. So can we agree that Abraham was not acting in a godly way, especially towards his wife? And yet Sarah did as he asked. Only by God stepping in and revealing the truth to Pharaoh in a dream that was Sarah spared from Abraham's horrible behavior. So I guess one of the real questions is why in the world would, would Sarah obey such a messed up plan? Why would she go along with this? And I think the answer is at the beginning of verse five. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. You see, Sarah was a godly woman because she hoped and trusted in God more than she hoped and trusted in her husband. And this truth is the million dollar takeaway from this whole message. I think it's critical to point out and safe to assume that Sarah's hope was not primarily that God was going to rescue her from her husband's foolishness. Rather, Sarah's hope that was God would use whatever she went through for the good of her faith and for the praise of God's glory. Her hope was in God. Of course, 
gratefully, we read that God did choose to save her from Abraham's lack of faith. Not once, but twice, as Abraham pulled the same bonehead stunt with King Abimelech again in, in, in Genesis 20. So I think what you see here is Peter is commending Sarah as an example for two reasons, both found at the end of verse six. You have become her children when number one, you do what is good, and two, do not fear any intimidation. Again, I like the ESV translation that says, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Sarah was clearly put in some extremely frightening situations by her husband, amen? But she could submit without fear because she hoped in the Lord more than she hoped in her husband. And on top of that, despite Abraham's sinfulness towards her, she could still, even then, she could still speak to him with endearing and loving phrases such as, my Lord. That fits the theme of 1 Peter, of showing honor, even when it's not deserved, for the sake of showing God to be most glorious. Here again, it is so essential to read this text in both a scriptural as well as a cultural context. Or you can walk away thinking that I said, if your husband tries to pawn you off to another man to save his skin, that you should go along with it. That is not the message. Remember that, that the women Peter was writing to didn't have near the rights or the position that women enjoy today in our culture. These women could relate a whole lot more to the kind of situation that Sarah would, had experienced. Their choices or options were limited. But on the other hand, it also doesn't mean that this text is entirely inapplicable today. Many godly women have husbands who claim to follow Christ yet do not act in a Christian way. And hear me again, this is not a call for women to submit themselves to being repeatedly and unrepentantly abused by their husbands, especially physically. Yet there are situations for women where it is indeed a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So that by keeping your conduct honorable, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, meaning they come to faith. And by doing this, their husbands may be won without a word by the respectful and pure conduct of their wives as they put their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them. And in turn, they're able to not even fear the things that are most frightening. Finally, we can turn our attention to the men. Again, men, don't get the big head. Um, thinking that we only, you only need one verse of instruction compared to six for the ladies. Here's the truth. Men were not typically in danger of being persecuted by their unbelieving wives for their faith. And also, just like today, it was far more common to have marriages with a believing wife and an unbelieving husband than the other way around. 
And yet, godly men could indeed be married to unbelieving spouses. And therefore, Peter has the same similar instructions for men. So let's look at verse seven. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Again, notice the first phrase, husbands in the same way. Well, I think it's safe to assume that he means as the same way that I instructed wives and slaves and citizens. If you're in a marriage with an unbelieving or ungodly wife, your first goal is to behave in such a way that by enduring persecution, that they too may be won by your respectful and pure conduct. Men, if you have an unbelieving spouse, what should be your greatest prayer? Is it not the salvation of your spouse? Therefore, make sure to treat your wives in such a way that your conduct will no way hinder your prayers for her salvation. And then Peter explains how to live that out. How do you live in a way that it won't hinder your prayers for her salvation? He says the first is to live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner. Now, by now, I, by now, I hope that you can hear Peter's heart that he's not demeaning women as inferior by referring to them as a weaker partner. I think the likely, likely application is for husbands not to use their physical strength advantage to intimidate or to bully their wives. Using your strength advantage is no more effective in winning your wife than a woman using her beauty advantage. In an understanding way as being aware not only of their physical disadvantage, but especially in the culture that Peter was writing to, be understanding of their, their social disadvantage as well in many cases. Husbands, please don't put your wife in a position where she could fear you as being frightening. Instead, he says, treat her with honor as a co-heir of the grace of life. Now I can tell you this command would be revolutionary in the first century culture because no one viewed women as co-heirs or equal to men in anything. Man, if you want Christ to look compelling to your unbelieving or ungodly wife, treat her with honor. Treat her with dignity as your co-heir or her, your equal in life. And yes, this applies today as well. It is appalling how many so-called Christian men treat their wives, believers or not, like it's still first century Rome. They not only fail to treat them with honor and dignity that they deserve as fellow image bearers of God, even spiritually, they often use the Bible or their own sense of righteousness as a hammer to condemn, to berate, and abuse their wives. 
Brothers, these things ought not to be. If God has blessed you with the gift of a wife, steward this gift with love, tenderness, and compassion. As Paul so famously says in Ephesians 5, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Men, love your wives like that, whether they're a believer or not. And I would contend that this is also precious in God's sight. And I guarantee you, it will be life-giving to your wife. So as I close, church, hear the plea of Peter. This world is not your home. You're a stranger and an alien here. Your hope is fixed on a better country, a heavenly one. Even your marriage is only a shadow of the true and better marriage that awaits you as a member of the bride of Christ. This truth should impact absolutely the way that you live in your momentary marriages here on earth. And therefore, set your hope on what lies ahead and make it your life's mission to be, as scripture says, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. An aroma of life leading to life. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, when I am with people whose faith is weak, I live as they do to win them. And he says, I do everything I can to win everyone I possibly can. Be that kind of wife or husband. That is the life of a spiritual exile. May God be praised. Let me pray. Oh, Father. Why you are mindful of us is, is beyond our wildest understanding. God, we are, we are sinful, broken people. Instead of faithfully stewarding the, the beautiful gifts of companions that you've given us too often, we treat them as property, as less than what, they, what you see them as. God, forgive our hardened hearts. God, today, would you, would you open our eyes, each of us? God, would you see, is there any way in us where we, for men, as men, if we have treated our wives less than the, the precious co-heir that you have given them to be. God, is our heart, is our heart, convict us where we have our, our desires for our spouses is less than to see them grow in the image of God. 
for your glory, not just our good. God, lead us to repentance where we have abused this wonderful gift of marriage as less than what you designed it to be. God, would we once again look to you to the way that you have loved us, the way that you served and sacrificed for us when we were most undeserving, when we were far from you. You loved us well. God, make us those kind of people. Challenge our hearts. Humble us. Draw us to true repentance. And God, may we be a people here who truly live as people whose, whose hope is not in this world, whose greatest hope is not even in, in, in that we would have the, the, the marriage of our dreams. God, we live in a way that our hope is fully, fully in you. God, make us those people. We pray this in your name. Amen.